0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of What Exits Jersey Stories. I'm your host, Nick Franco, and with me, as always, Pete Riario. And today we have a very, very, very special guest. Um, you know, uh, New, New Jersey's
1: uh, f- favorite son. Probably, maybe in the top 1,000. Maybe in the, <laughs> the, maybe the top 5,000 favorite sons.
2: You should put that under your headshot, Elliot. You know, New Jersey's favorite son.
1: (laughs) There we go. Now that it's been set,
0: I can can, can officially do it. It's it's been spoken into the world, so it must be true. It's it's on the internet. So, Mm. Um, yeah, New New Jersey's own, Milburn's own, Elliot Kalin. Elliot, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm super excited. I appreciate that uh, you guys invited me onto the show, that you bore with me as I uh, had to delay joining you until after a trip to new jersey uh, which has only which only made me more excited to talk about it so Great. thanks so much Excellent. for having me oh no no thank we goodness.
2: appreciate you oh, taking the time at Elliot. Ell- 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 we know how busy you are you know so
1: oh anything yeah. anything for the garden state anything right. for my thank home. you, uh, <laughs> 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 thank you. I'm so i'm so far away from it these days any any little chance i can get to be a part of it again that's all i need
2: so if Zach thanks, braff man. if Zach braff asks you on his podcast after this you'll say yes anything for the garden state i
1: mean i uh, well, we'll figure, I mean, this is—I'm more excited to be on this one, but uh, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> I don't why, that's I don't a ringing why endorsement. I don't know why I'm—I don't know why I'm—I'm nagging Zach Braff. That doesn't <laughs> no for that.
0: Oh, somewhere man. Zach Braff is like, wait, somebody's talking
1: about me in a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he turns to his his guests to get list, and he just crosses my name off. <laughs> yeah. no, it would, have, it would have been a huge career boost. Mm. Zach, please have me on. Well <laughs>
0: here's a question for you, Elliot. Yeah, and, and being that you have grown what, up an exit, fifty B. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there, <all right. laughs> <there it goes. laughs>
2: the obvious question.
0: Yeah. But um uh what was it like growing up in Milburn? Like for those not familiar with you know the, the
1: township of Milburn. So Milburn, New Jersey, uh, the town I grew up, I spent the first seventeen years of my life there until I went all the way to New York for college. Uh, it's a pretty uh, and nowadays, it's a very affluent town. When I was growing up, it mm. was a fairly affluent town. Uh, there's a section of New Jersey – excuse me, New Jersey. section of Melbourne called Short Hills, which mm. likes to act like its own town, and they are very <laughs> yes. wealthy. Yes, and, the mall
2: uh, shows that.
1: Yeah, the mall at Short Hills, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm. the, they used to run these ads on TV. I'm sure you remember where they would say, your dreams are attainable the mall at short hills that's a big big promise for a mall uh and i worked there for a little bit it was not i didn't see dreams being a A lot of of expensive (laughs) things were sold but but, uh it's milburn when i was growing up it was uh become it was a pretty middle class upper middle class town and in the as i grew up it got more and more affluent and so like there's still kind of a real old movie theater there, but they've done their best Ooh. to kind of make it seem like it's not a real old movie theater. And But like uh-huh. uh, growing up, uh I was felt very lucky being there uh, because we had, I mean, one, we had a lot of movie theaters in the area, which was great. There was a lot of, um, and it's, there's lots of diners in the area, which is fantastic, including the <laughs> Diner, which was Sur- real.
0: Su- Surprised in New Jersey, a lot of diners. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: But, uh, but that, uh, there was a the thing that I think is was most special about growing up in Melbourne to me is that there's a fantastic theater right there, a fantastic regional theater called the Paper Mill Playhouse, which would yes. get a lot of performers from New York because it's a thirty minute train ride from Penn Station to Milburn. Mm-hmm. And so, growing up, my parents were both um, my mom was a is is a New Yorker and my dad grew up in White Plains. And so, like they. And they lived in New York city for a while. And so they were very big theater going people and Mm. that we would routinely go to the paper mill playhouse to see shows. And the shows were just of a really high quality there. And and it wasn't until I was older that I realized, Oh, this is not a thing that everybody gets to do when they grow up is like go to a a professional level theater in their, in their town. And I think it had a Mm. real influence on me wanting to go into, into the performing arts and into writing. But other than that, like, I don't know Milburn. Like it, I, I appreciate Melbourne now more as a grown-up than I did as a as a kid or a teen. I never particularly liked it. Otherwise, uh, mm. it was fine. But it was very. Um, I never really felt fully in place there. Uh, the the one place I mean the one place that really felt uh, other than the theater I felt special to me is there used to be a comic book store in Melbourne called One Flight Up, which, One Flight Up. Okay. Which was uh, I spent so much time there growing up, and I got to know the owners really well and. That was like uh, I was just very excited when a comic book store opened up right in town. Cause mm-hmm. there had been a there was a comic store in the Morristown Mall, I think, but it was like super tiny, it was not great. And then finally it'd have a comic book store there. But otherwise it is the kind of place where um, growing up over you a lot of the like stuff like hardware stores and shoe stores would get turned into like yoga studios over time. And I was just there recently and I was just like there's like this place seems so much more, so much wealthier than it was before. And it was still already mm. like a, like a well-off town, but now it's even more. So I w- mm. I was, when I, I worked at the uh, Suncoast motion picture company video store in the oh, wow. mall. And <laughs> it was, and I, I want to make it clear. I grew up in the, in the bad part of Melbourne on the border with union township. So, <laughs> oh, okay. they, so like, not really the bad part, but the part where like, it was still fine, but it wasn't, but it wasn't <laughs> was like mansions that was over in short hills. <laughs> but, uh, So I went to this video store, and it was very clear that this was, like, a store the mall was not super happy about having because it Mm. wanted, like, fancy bag stores and fancy shoe stores and things like that. And people would walk in, and this was when DVDs were still new. Like, they were new, and they cost $30 to $40 per DVD. They were very expensive. And people would walk in and buy movies they had never seen for, you know, $30, $40 a pop. And I just remember selling that. They'd be like, I just remember one time a guy goes, hmm, Eye of the Beholder. And that was with uh, what, you McGregor and uh Ashley Judd, I think. Anyway, it's like a, yes. it's like exactly. a thriller movie. He they, this guy was like, Eye of the Beholder? I don't think I've seen that. Yeah, I'll take it. And it was like, this costs forty dollars. <laughs> like like <is> this <laughs> And it's not the why? and it's not
2: the criterion collection. No.
1: no. <laughs> it was just like this the, the amount of time I spent in that store telling people that like no, Back to the Future is not on DVD yet, sorry. No, Star Wars is not on DVD yet. Uh, and I remember Jaws came out on DVD and it was a normal, like, we couldn't keep them on the shelves. They were flying off- out of the place, you know. Anyway, that's a long rambling way of saying that Milburn was a fairly affluent upper middle class town that has only gotten more so. And going up there, I felt like a real uh, fish out of water. It was not my type of place. I always wished I was mm-hmm. growing up in New York. Although now I'm kind of glad that I didn't because New York kids have that kind of thousand yard stare <laughs> they, they, you know, they, they've seen too much and they've, they've experienced too much at too yes. young an age. Is that, did going, you mention,
2: is that comic book store still there, the one flight up? Uh?
1: No, unfortunately it's not still there. It closed, I'm, I'm trying to remember how long, it must have been a, a number of years ago. It was after I was out a college, so it was after 2003, but, uh, the, but I don't remember exactly when it closed. I kind of, you know, there was a period of my time when I was, period of my life when I was like not going back home that often, even though it was a fairly short train ride from New York city. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, it started as a store in Newark that was called one flight up and they opened this one in Melbourne. It was called oh, one flight okay. up too. Okay. And, uh, and I, uh, the guys there, I just, just really liked a lot. It was the, it was a father and son who owned it. And Excellent. The, the dad would sell like movie memorabilia and like, you know, bootleg like, photocopied screenplays out of the back. <laughs> and but the rest was, you know, just classic comic book store. Um, and, uh, the and i just you know i'd spend a lot of time there you know i was, I was your classic like hanging around the comic store kid oh and then uh, i know that so feeling I started, yeah and I, I started working there and then almost immediately broke the register and so i didn't work there for that Oh, and I'm guessing when you say broke the register,
0: was it like that? That wasn't like a euphemism for, wow, the sales were like. <laughs> no, no.
1: We can't handle this volume of business. You got to go. It was literally like a, uh, there was a, there was a woman who like put down a cup of coffee on the counter and, I didn't see it there. And she went to hand me the books that she was buying and oh. some, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but the coffee got knocked into the register and just like wrecked the whole thing. And it was like, Oh man. All right. So that's, so they were like, mm, okay, this is uh, like, maybe next time don't tell them what, tell them they can put coffee right on the counter. Like we sell a lot of paper here. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: j- j- just so you know, by the way, Elliot, I, I did, uh, like the, the, uh, standard preparations for a podcast with Elliot beforehand. I got, I got a podcast, uh, uh, poster in the background here f- from your uh, 2018 shows. Oh, thank and, you. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was a
1: good tour. That was our last li- last live tour. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the most important thing,
1: Popeye's. Uh, Popeye's. Popeyes. Popeyes. Oh. Thank <laughs> I I came to Popeye's relatively late in life when I was a teenager. Mm. Uh before then there was a Roy Rogers right on the uh, outskirts of Milburn or maybe it was had it, did it bleed into the other town by then? I can't remember. But we'd go to Roy Rogers all the time. And then when I was at a certain age, uh, my mom got tired of cooking for us a lot of the time. And okay. she would cook up, cook for us plenty of times. But there were nights where she'd be like, I don't want to cook. We're going to do a Route 22 run. And we'd just drive down Route mm. 22, and each kid would get drive get – fast food from the drive-thru they chose. And I started getting Popeye's from there and I never looked back. And I was look <laughs> back. Um, Good for you. And it's just, uh, what it's a uh, it's the only food that like, I really start to want it if I haven't had it for a while. And now my older son, who's seven and a half, we had the, the beginning of each month. We have Popeye's lunch together. It's a very special thing. Now that oh, I've inducted oh, him into it's it. nice. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Generation to generation. And there's a part of me, It's like, now I, I think about this sometimes where I'm like, obviously, I, I will feel weird if I die and Popeyes, the company continues on, but I don't want it to go out of business before I die. Cause I don't want to live in a world without, without it. Like, yeah. So it's, <laughs> this weird, this, I feel the same way about Marvel comics where it's like, feels weird that like someday I'm going to die and there's still going to be new Spider-Man stories. Like that's, that's mm. strange. I'm going to miss out on them. But at the same time, do I want the company to go out of business before I die? No, of course no. not. No, no, like, no. I no. want to read those stories. And, yeah. And, and, chicken. and
0: you know, like, uh, but, but, but se- in being that you brought it up, uh, Spider-Man, what do you, how do you feel the the, the life that the, those couple of panels have taken? When um, for people that do not know, Elliot uh, wrote Spider-Man: The X-Men, the the follow-up to when uh, you know Death of Wolverine, because mm-hmm. you had Wolverine: The X-Men. So the the follow-up was Spider-Man: The X-Men, and um, the 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 classic. Uh, conversation between Spider Man and
1: Sauron. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I did Spider-Man. read that actually. <laughs> Spider Man says to Sauron, mm-hmm. You've got this technology that can cure cancer, but using it to turn people into dinosaurs. And goes goes, You're using this to turn people into dinosaurs? With technology like that, you could cure cancer. And Sauron says, I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. And, it's, <laughs> and he, I remember he, He's someone that knew what he wanted, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's honest about himself. He understands what he wants to do yep. with his life. <laughs> he's. It's something I remember write, writing that panel and being like, I know why, I think I know why this is funny, but I'm not sure. Like, usually, I've been a joke writer for, for a long, long time now, and you know, for 20 years or so, and the uh, professionally paid joke writer, not as long as that, but you know what I mean. But uh, this, <laughs> I was an amateur before then, but uh, it's being like, usually I can write a joke and I can explain to you why it's funny, I can explain the logic behind it. And this one, I couldn't really. When I first wrote it, just like, <laughs> I just kind of think it is. <laughs> and I hope other people think it is. And I like oh, it. Yes. I laughed. Okay. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. And it's, it's taken on this new life on online where people use it to explain when, when like some, but when a billionaire is like, I'm going to shoot myself into space for five minutes <laughs> rather than help people. It's like, yeah, like, well, uh, why, why don't you use your
0: money for you know, good? And it's like, no, no, I want to shoot myself into space for five
1: minutes. It's like, right. here, refer to Spider-Man and X-Men. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, and, I just, and it's so many more people have seen that panel now that ever than read the original issue. So I wish that mm-hmm. like, um, I wish that there was an easier way to, uh, to link people back to that story so they could read it. But at least whenever I see it on Twitter, usually someone replies tagging me, you know, Mm -hmm. to say that I wrote it, which is really nice. And uh, the, yeah, if if there's ever anything that is going to be my legacy on this earth after I go, aside from my children, I guess that's going to be it. Is that one panel? You know, <laughs> you know. I, th- I think there's a lot more that we can uh, point out that, you know, like uh, as far as your uh, legacy, uh, mm-hmm. Elliot. So. Oh, thanks. But, well, I'm still young. I'm still I don't. I, yes. I, I'm working on more stuff. Hopefully, I mean, That
0: and we've enjoyed everything up to now. And, and, and in oh, fact, thanks, you, thanks. We, we, let's talk about some of that. <laughs> but but mm-hmm. just real quick, uh, being that we were mentioning Sauron and dinosaurs. Did, did you know New Jersey has its own state dinosaur?
1: Uh, you know what? I think I knew it,
0: but I don't know what it is. What is it? It is the, ha- um, the Hadrosaurus,
1: uh, f- uh, feely, Uh, okay. so, it's that, Polky. So, so it's a, it's a duckbill dinosaur, Hadrosaurus.
0: Yes. Yeah. Vegetarian, uh, about 25, uh, 25 feet long,
1: but can stand, uh, about 10 feet tall on its, uh, hind legs. Hmm. I did not realize that that was the state dinosaur. That's a solid dinosaur. That's, oh, it's yes. not, yeah. the, it's not one of the flashier dinosaurs, no. but it is. It's not a tyrannosaurus. No, it's not Dinosaurus or, or even a like a Stegosaurus, which I think sometimes about Stegosaurus, and I'm like, why is this one of the famous ones? It's a weird dinosaur. But, but uh, you, you do know what the end the uh, end of the uh, Stegosaurus is called, though that, that
0: little part on the tail. It's a fagomizer, right? A fagomizer. Yeah. That is wow. correct. And Pete, like a
2: late night infomercial.
0: Did, <laughs> do you know what that, that came right. from, Pete? The what? The the
2: fagomizer. Oh, I have no idea where to it. Uh, being from.
1: that Elliot said it, I, I'm sure he knows what it came from. Well, that yeah, if, I, if I'm going to further right, that uh, that in a Far Side cartoon, Gary Larson mm-hmm. named. He says this was discovered by you know, uh, it killed its discoverer, Thag, like or whatever <laughs> yes. it is. It's named after its discoverer, the thagmizer. And somebody a paleontologist was like, well it did not have a name for it. So now it does. Well, yes. You just used to call it the spikes at the end of the tail, I guess, but now it's called the right. Thagomizer. So, so kids at home listening, that's a lesson. Don't, don't assume that uh, everything's been discovered or decided already. There's still nope. lots of, if, if there's a thing you don't know the name for it, it's possible. It doesn't have a name. Go and invent that thing. Put it in right. a comic strip. Here we go. Petrosaurus well, is a good, that's a good, that's a good dinosaur. I feel like, um, I mean, I assume it was native to a, uh, New Jersey. That's probably why they,
0: yeah. In in fact, it's actually the first, um, the the most complete dinosaur skeleton unearthed anywhere in the world when it was discovered in uh, 1858. Oh, wow. And the first mounted dinosaur uh, skeleton uh, displayed anywhere in the world uh, 10 years later. Was it
1: displayed in New Jersey or was it displayed somewhere else? There's a museum of
0: natural history. mm, I think it may have been displayed initially in New Jersey but um, the na- uh, what is it the National oh uh, what, what, what one of the. Uh, US <clears throat> agencies basically it's it's now part of like the you know, for science it is now part of and I I should have written it down but, but it's not at th- it's not in
1: New York at the American Museum of Natural History or is it I don't know if it's there I, it may be down actually DC. Oh, okay. That makes if it's at the, maybe when it's at the Smithsonian, Smithsonian right. National History Museum. That mm. makes sense. All right. Always stealing from New Jersey. Sure. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. It's like it says, just like it says in in was it Trenton? Trenton makes makes the world, world takes. takes. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You're very familiar <laughs> with the uh, concept as well. I mean, yeah. It's. I feel like it's such a funny thing about growing up in New Jersey is that there, there's you like have an instant defensiveness because I mean I remember growing up it was it felt like New Jersey was like an easy butt of just like sitcom jokes like yep. on the Golden Girls they would just be like like I, there's something smells here am i from new is this new jersey or something like that and it'd be mm-hmm. like i so you growing up it was always like there's a lot of beautiful things in new jersey it's a, it's a small state with a lot of good, <laughs> good stuff in it the I most bet. densely populated state in the nation too yeah, it's most dense populated the <laughs> yeah. states where most of the cranberries come from like come on right, the, right. The, oh, the, oh uh, although that's not our state berry it's the blueberry <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's the blueberry lobby it was was pretty powerful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Came
1: crushing the cranberry. Uh, yeah,
0: the lobby I remember there. when
1: I when I was a kid, like we grew like um. It always surprised me how little New Jersey history we would learn. That like you know mm. a lot of the revolution was fought there. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's the end. We just no. didn't, we didn't learn any of that. There was a an, the most it, battles it, right? actually of the
0: hist- uh, American Revolution were fought in New Jersey over a hundred oh, battles.
1: That. Yeah. And the uh, right down the street from my house, where I grew up, was the site of an incredibly minor, like maybe the most minor Revolutionary War battle, where it was based. I don't remember the name of it. Where it's like basically two armies were marching past each other and saw each other and, and shot each other for a few minutes. <laughs> and and they <laughs> just Jeez. all kept going. Like, but uh, but that it just was never. It, it, that it wasn't part of our education. And my wife, who grew up in California, uh, California state history is such a big part of their public school curriculum. And it feels like mm. a real wasted, real wasted thing that. When I was growing up, we spent so much time learning about the European explorers that like bumped into the continent, and so much mm-hmm. time learning about things that happened in New Jersey and that you know th- our New Jersey forefathers were involved and mothers, forefathers right. and mothers. Oh boy, gotta cover right. all the right. and, and, have, and, and, <laughs> and
0: actually, there were there were more than four. There were five that actually were. That's
1: as far as the classic, uh, <laughs> <Nice, laughs> classic, that,
0: classic. that, 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 <laughs> that uh, as far as like for for the uh, Constitution, there uh, it's like oh yeah, we, we we had five of them there. Uh, not yeah. The, Constitution. Declaration of
1: Independence. Declaration. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it, so, so it's, it's. I feel it feels like New Jersey has a um, has a real. Uh, I guess it comes from being right under New York, having that inferiority complex of like, yeah, like mm-hmm. always being on the defensive, but never. Uh, never making the most of it. it eventually it reminds me of professional writers. Professional, professional writers are kind of the same way where they're like they're like mm, no one treat we're really important but no one treats us like we're important this is in television and film no one treat, no, you can't do anything without a script but nobody treats writers like they're important. Hmm. and you kind of start to really <laughs> like or, or become precious about that feeling of like superior inferiority you know where you're mm. like I'm the best because everyone treats me bad. maybe New Jersey has a little bit of that New Jersey. Be confident. Come on, it's okay. <laughs> Talk about
0: well, how at, great you are. At, at the same point, I, I, t- tell me if uh, like if you feel the same way. I think one of the things about New Jersey humor, like um, comedians, writers that come from the Garden State, I think there is that that bit of inferiority and um, the self depreciation. Yes. Yeah. That that, that comes with our humor, which actually works to our advantage. We got, we, In we, some ways. Know, like,
1: I guess so. I guess so. If you want to be a comedian, there's a there's an old bit that because uh, I, I worked on at the Daily Show for a long time, and mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. when John Stewart was the host, and he's a real New Jersey guy and lives in New Jersey now again. But bumped into him in Red Bank actually. Mm-hmm. Oh really? At, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. at an ice cream shop. Oh, I believe it. He's. Uh, <laughs> it's, it was really. There was a time when he uh, another former Daily Show uh, guy and me. We we went to visit John when he was he was working on a project a few years ago that ended up not. Not going, and we drove down to Red Bank and went to the offices of this project. And we we and we thought we were going to this like rescue farm. These got set up, and we were like, we can't oh yeah, this oh, farm. Yes. And then we're in the middle of Red Bank, the town, and we're like, I don't think this is a farm. Like, they're, <laughs> they're <laughs> like but, uh, but it was. But uh, the offices were right near Kevin Smith's comic book store. Oh yeah, the, like, the
0: secret stash. Actually, yeah. the, the, This yeah, here's the thing. I don't know if you were aware, the podcast studio that we're coming through like um it, w- when you met Chris the engineer earlier mm-hmm. um the podcast studio was started by Mike Zapsack and Ming Chen two of the comic book men that are from
1: Kevin Smith Oh, I didn't realize right. that. Cuz mm-hmm. it yeah. was it was very funny to have this office and the story there cuz it was like this is Red Bank's like Miracle Mile like Hollywood like this is this is the yeah. <laughs> like the entertainment center of Red Bank, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, but I think that there was a there was a daily Show bit we did once where it was on the subject of like kids being bullied or something. And John is like, what would my life have been like if I wasn't bullied? And he met and he is this fantasy <laughs> of him as the president, but he's also like a starting quarterback for, for the Giants. <laughs> oh so it was like, I think the self-deprecation helps you if you're going to be a, in comedy, but it, uh, you, you might get to other fields if you don't have it, but it does. there certainly is a, I mean, there's such a, there, there's a rich vein of New Jersey comics and like there, the, uh, certainly it was a, it was a big leg up for me. At the Daily Show when I worked there, that John was a Jewish guy from New Jersey, and I was a Jewish guy from New Jersey, and we kind of spoke mm. the same language, and mm. the uh, and that when he when he talked to the way he explained things, like I just understood what he was talking about because even though we came from slightly different parts of New Jersey, right, the, uh, the, it was still that. That kind of that same language and same feeling, you know, the the desire to use as few pronouns as possible, and just <laughs> refer, refer to things as that thing or or this guy or over there, you know, What call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like if you if you, you can have a lot of conversations in New Jersey without ever naming the thing that you're talking about. Which is, That's
2: true, <laughs>
1: but but everyone around you, if if they are from New Jersey will completely understand what oh, you are exactly. <laughs> yeah. And if they say, and the other thing, you're like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know the other thing you're talking about.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh, but, but here's a question uh, regarding your time at the Daily Show. Uh, well, first off, how did it come to be? How did you become
1: part of the Daily Show with John Stewart? Like, like it was a, it was a combination of like, a, like everything is like you know a, a real lucky circumstance and and uh, you know, hard work they, those those mm. things going together, like being ready for mm. opportunities. I guess so. I was a screenwriting major at NYU, and I'd been a Daily Show fan since the first episode when Kilborn was the host. I've been watching right. for years, and like I went to tapings of it when I was so I, like, when I was in college. Oh, really? It was, it was I, I went like, to.
2: I have a story of, from. A, I, don't know, I mean, this is your time, but uh, I'll tell you some other time. I've, I've a story, which mean, is really funny.
1: Uh, your story yeah. I haven't heard before. I've heard all my stories, but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, like, the spotlight's
2: uh, on you, Elliot. But uh, yeah,
1: I remember there was a time when um, there was like a blizzard and like five people showed up to be in the audience, and I remember being like, I would have shown up. I wish I had tickets for that day. Um, but the I I was I needed to do an internship my last semester of school, and I was going to graduate a semester early because I could not wait to get out of school and start. Doing work, I did not, you know, some people, they really like to spend as much time at college as possible. And I was just like, get me out of here. Like, I want to have a life, you know, I was, I was too fast for my own good. And the, through like a sheer coincidence, coincidence my dad met someone who was friendly with the a, a guy who was at the time, the associate director of the, of the Daily Show, this guy named Paul Penalino, who is okay. a real, just a great guy. He's one of my favorite people. And, you know, and we've remained close ever since. This was in like 2002. And he, um, he's not a New Jersey guy, he's a New York guy, but, you know, close enough anyway. But uh, the, <laughs> and, uh, he he said, okay, sure, I'll talk to him on the phone. And we had a phone conversation. And I guess I like, you know, impressed him enough that he passed on my resume and they interviewed me for an internship there and i got the internship and i had this great last semester at school where i was only taking classes one day a week and then i was interning at the daily show three days a week and then i was working at the barnes noble in chelsea in new york which is no longer there two days a Mm -hmm. week and then one day off and it was like this is great i'm spending almost no time at school which is fantastic i'm getting to spend all this time at this tv show that i love and i'm working at a bookstore so i have a big discount when i buy books here uh and i can you know, I was living so incredibly frugally that I could support myself at the time. I was that was, those are what I call my, uh, my, my boiled pasta with no sauce and hot dogs without buns days, where it was like, it was like, <laughs> how, like, how many meals can I get? Well, this, I can get this pack of store brand hot dogs for $1.50. There's eight of them here. So that's like four meals for $1.50. That's good. Okay. I'll, I'll do that. There we go. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, but, uh, I, so I interned there and they, they, you know, the, the short version of this is that they, they asked the uh, PA uh, production assistant position was opening up because uh, a woman named uh, Camel Smith, who's now uh, an executive in, in here in LA and Hollywood, she was moving from production assistant to researcher. So They need a new production assistant. And hmm. I, and from that point on, I was just kind of like in the daily show family and got really close to a lot of the people who worked there. really felt like, the, the thing that I was looking for in college that I didn't quite get, which was the sense of like, oh, this is my community. Like, I really felt that there right. when I was working there. And every couple of years, I would get, uh, for a little bit, I would get tired of the work I was doing, and an opportunity would magically open up above me, and I would like really work really hard to, to get it and then get it. And they, there was a, so I went from being a production assistant to me and another production assistant, this guy, Jimmy Don, we put together two like pitch segments to show them uh, that we could make TV also. And uh, we wrote and edited these two segments that very kindly Ed Helms and Rob Corddry, who were correspondents on the show at the time, mm-hmm. they agreed to star in them. And we like made VHS copies of them because that's how long ago this was and left them on the desks with a cover letter of the executive producers and that impressed them. And they, But they also happened to be opening up the like segment producing department that handled all the footage and worked with the writers. And so they moved us up into there and then a writing position opened up and I tried out for that. And the and then after I've been doing that for a while, uh, the head writer left to run John Oliver's show and they offered the head writer position to me. And like this is a very short version of it. it this You know, this is over the course of um, like 13 years of me being there, basically starting as an intern. But uh, it was just a very it was all from that, like keeping an eye out for the opportunities there and just like working as hard as I could and getting a reputation as somebody who was always working hard and was pleasant to be around and that kind of stuff. And I started there as a, you know, as a 19 year old, um, in college. And by the time I left, I was the head writer of the show and I had a wife and a child and was in my thirties. And it was like, I remember that with the, I left the show when John left and right. there was a big party that night on the intrepid, the aircraft carrier that yeah. stopped right off mm-hmm. Manhattan. And we were uh, the, and my wife and I stayed at we were living in Brooklyn at the time we stayed in Manhattan overnight you know after the party and we were walking past the studios the next day and I was like I don't think I'm ever going to have like an experience like that again she said no you're not i'll tell you like you are up now. <laughs> like you're never going to start at a show as a kid and then grow up there it's not gonna happen. Yeah. and she hey, said right. do you
2: think uh, that you know comedic writing you know of, of such a high caliber is that something that's an innate trait that you know you are born with, or you develop, um, and hone, what are your thoughts on that? Well,
1: I I think it's a little bit of both. I think that there's certain people are certain people have it in them to be funny and certain people do not have it in them to be funny, but the mechanics of how a joke works, like you can tell that you can teach that to somebody if they want to learn it. And Mm -hmm. even if you have the talent to do it, it takes hard work to really like you're saying to hone it, to get better at it, Mm -hmm. to make it, I'm a big believer in the idea that like that your brain functions like a muscle. And the more you use it to do for certain tasks, the easier they get, or the more more, the quicker your reaction time. And while I was working on the Daily Show, I think one of the things that uh set me apart from maybe not all the writers, but but many of the writers was that I was very focused on on doing that work to like actively make myself better or or faster at working on these things. And so by the end of it, my time there as the head writer, I would almost never be writing first drafts of things um but occasionally you know very occasionally infrequently there were times when john would want to do something had like a serious message he had to give and mm-hmm. i would write a very a first draft of that just to get help him with his thinking on it you know and by that point i've been working for him for you know 11 10 12 years so like i understood somewhat how his mind worked and how he talked and the language he used and things like that it helped me a lot while i was writing there to be like i'm not writing for a real person I'm writing for a character named John Stewart who talks like this and thinks Mm -hmm. this way. And if he's a character, I can put himself in that character mindset. And, uh, but I would really come up with a lot of like, um, so by the time I was head writer, it was, I was rewriting scripts and sometimes I would only have about 40 minutes to rewrite a script and sometimes a lot of work needs to be done on it. And so I came up with methods and mechanisms, mental mechanisms I could use to write jokes faster and to, uh, so to make it so, instead of like sitting around waiting for inspiration, I had kind of like um, almost like algorithms I could run in my head to get oh, to put jokes together. But it took it took a lot of time and a lot of like me on my own free time, to kind of like working on that stuff. Um, but as a writer, I've always been very interested in trying to get. uh, get as good as I can at things actively because I mean, that's the thing that if I learned anything from John Stewart, it's the difference between between doing things actively and passively and how, when you do things actively and you take charge of whatever process you're using, you'll get better results and you'll in a, and you'll learn from it. Whereas if you do things passively and you just kind of let yourself be driven by the whims of your imagination all the time, Mm -hmm. uh, you're not, it's not gonna be reliable work and also it'll take time and you're not gonna be happy with the efforts. But, Mm -hmm. um, But I I remember growing up, uh, I was always disappointed in this gap between – there's a video that Ira Glass made years ago where he talks about the gap between your taste and your ability and how when you're starting out in a creative field, or really any field probably, but especially creative field, your taste for things is much more advanced than your ability to create those things. So for years, you might be writing and you'd be like, this is bad writing. like I know this is not good like I read – like if i'm reading uh, you know this jonathan Lethem book why can i not write as well as jonathan Lethem cuz i've read all his books and i know his books are good and i know what i like about his books you know i'm reading well, like, a. like you, you feel like like okay why can't i just absorb that same formula and be able exactly.
0: to r- reproduce or, or produce your own iteration of you know Lethem? you know it's like yeah, yeah exactly
1: and it's like you know if you're wood if you're a carpenter you can know how, you can appreciate you know amazing uh, carpentry that doesn't mean that you can automatically Make carpentry as good as that. So it's, the, <laughs> right it's kind there. of very similar. Where it's like even if you have the talent, the ability, the uh the dedication to develop that talent is what makes the difference so often. And you look at like um the thing that people, the thing that comics always say about Jerry Seinfeld is they're like Jerry Seinfeld like sits down and, and writes, like he works at, it. like he's not he and he won't deliver something on stage until he's like worked it out privately. And that's something that is is always flabbergasting, you know. But it's mm-hmm. you know the way it, that's it's the reason that he's maybe the most successful comedian in the history of the world, you know, is that, (laughs) uh, that he, uh, aside from just having a talent for it, like put so much of his effort into, into developing that talent. So with comedy writing, I think it's very much the same thing. And if you, if you're only doing it off of your talent, unless you are so, so so geniusly talented, then eventually you're going to stall out or, or burn out, or you, you need to, you need to hone it so that it becomes a, something that you can do reliably. Um, over and over again, and uh, and you don't have to worry that, like, I'm going to run out of creative ju- creative juice someday. One of the things I learned from uh, from another writer of The Daily Show was that, like, you don't have to worry that you're going to run out of jokes, that uh, he would, we were working on something once, and anytime anyone got up and walked past the room we were in to use the bathroom, he would call them in and be like, hey, hey, listen to this joke, and if they didn't laugh, he'd go, okay, forget it, forget it, we'll, we'll do a different one, and I was like, well, I think it's a funny joke, like, just because this one person didn't laugh, he goes, it's fine, we'll do another one, and he really, he was a, a very, there's a man I learned a lot of lessons from to not do the things that he did uh, in other ways. But, the, but I learned from him that like, uh, you don't have to worry about running out of jokes. So you can always come up with another joke. So, so don't stop with the first one you come up with or even the third one you come up with if it's not as good as you can do. Um, mm. that, that it was like the daily show kind of taught me the twin lessons of you have a limited time to do a thing. So you have to figure out how to get it done in that limited time. And if it's not perfect, too bad. Like, you got to let it go because we need to tape at six. Or, and also, don't worry if that joke didn't work, throw it away, come up with a new one because you can come up with it. There's an unlimited, there's a bottomless well of jokes in you as long as you keep, you know, throwing the bucket down and, and pulling it back up again. So, yeah. um, you know, I learned a lot. I learned more there than anywhere else, which makes sense because I started there when I was a wee a wee lad and I, and I was in <laughs> yeah, <the> time.
2: Right. <laughs> can a comedy Amazing. writer successfully do stand-up and vice versa? Could, could a stand-up I'm saying, like, a, you know, a good successful one. I mean, John Stewart's an example of that. He's both a writer and a stand-up, and a, correct? And a performer, yeah. Yeah, and a performer. And I'm wondering, does that hold true for m- most comedy writers or most uh, – in other words, are they interchangeable, I guess is what I'm asking you. Like, do you – would you mm. feel confident going up at Caroline's or, you know, Comedy Cellar and doing – and how do you think you would do?
0: Well, well you, you well, used to actually
1: have your own uh, show, wasn't it the uh, – what was it, Kalen? Oh, I did I'm... I did a bunch of shows called like the Midnight Kalen and the Prime The Midnight Kalen, thank yeah. you. So I think I think they're two I think they're different skills. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap. But uh and I used to do stand up, but it was one of those things where I think if I had really worked hard at it, I think I could have been a solid like a solid middle stand up. I don't think mm-hmm. I ever would have been a big headliner, but I think I could have made it to doing the middle spot where you're not the opening act anymore. You're doing, you know. 20, 30 minutes between the opener and the headliners can do an hour. Right. 45. And, but I don't, I don't think I really had it in me to be like, to be a big headliner. And, but at the same time, you have to a lot, being a stand-up, it's, you have to be able to perform and feel comfortable in front of, on a stage. And I used to do this show called the midnight Kalen, a friend. I, so when I was in college, I did sketch comedy uh, with my, my friend, Brock Mahan. We were writing and performing partners for a long time. And, the writing was always much easier than the performing. And I remember we did a show once and we were very young, you know, we were like, you know, 20, 21 when we we're doing this. And, uh, or no, even, younger. I think we were like 19 and we did a show once and someone said, you guys could be really good if you didn't look at the floor the whole time. And it was like, Oh, we didn't even know we were doing that. Like it was <laughs> right. And, have to pointed and uh, out. <laughs> it said, but it, but I used to, but a friend of mine, um, Eric Marszak, he used to run a, ran, He ran a basement comedy theater, and I used to do midnight shows there where I would not write any material ahead of time. And the audiences were very small. And we would give people free pizza in the middle of the show, <laughs> like to get them to come in. <laughs> and so I felt very, I felt like I have no obligation for this to be a great show because we're giving them pizza. The tickets are very cheap. Uh, like, and doing that, it was similar with writing. Like, it was a lot of good practice for being on stage and feeling comfortable on stage and going up there with no, no material and just having to come up with it off the top of my head. And so by the time that like, like I had to, uh, I had to accept an Emmy award a few, a couple years ago for the mm-hmm. daily show. And it was like, and I was very nervous until I got on stage and I was like, Oh, okay, this is a stage. Like it's a stage and there's an audience. A stage is a stage is a stage. It's the you know, you have to be louder, but it's the, kind of the same thing. And I'm only gonna be talking for 20 seconds anyway, but I think I'd be comfortable. Like, so some writers are, can be really good performers and some performers can be really good writers. Um, but it's all about the comfort on stage and also the preparation. Like I was, I've thought about this recently because I've been thinking about sh- when stand-up is kind of back in force mm. and my kids are a little older. Mm. Would I go back? Would I consider going back to doing like low level stand up? Cause I have friends who still do standup regularly and there's part of me that wants to do it, but I'd feel like I really got to prepare for it. I've got to make sure right. I have enough material. I got to make sure that I've practiced it. And the practice mm-hmm. is the part that always is the, the hardest for me because I feel more comfortable telling jokes to an audience than telling jokes to a mirror or to my wife and no other people. Like it feels, that feels more uncomfortable to me than telling a joke to a hundred or a thousand people. But, uh, right. the, but like I, I have a lot of nightmares where I am going up to talk or perform somewhere and I have not prepared at all. And it's, it just that, that cause then it's one of those things where it's like, I can talk off the top of my head, but it's not going to be as good as it could be. And mm-hmm. I'm so not used to, at this point. I'm not used to performing for audiences that don't already know me. We do like live shows for my podcast, the flop house, yeah. but mm-hmm. it's almost all people who know the podcast already. And the idea of going up before going to a comedy club and going up for an audience, of people who don't know me. Um, if I was prepared, I'd be like, okay, I can do this. But if you to try to do it, not prepared. I don't think I have that courage anymore. I think I, I had that when I was younger and now mm. I don't, mm. I don't think I could do it. The hardest yeah. part for me with, with standup comedy that was hanging out at the club which you have to do a lot of. And there was a, I think because I was already had a day job, it would be like, okay, I'm going to go to the up this up club. I'm going to hang out for an hour or two before my spot. Then I'm going to hang out for another hour or two afterwards. Cause I want to like be part of the community so that they'll book me for other shows. Hmm. And it was just like, I don't, I don't have it in me. I don't have the energy in me to just hang out that long and like Hang right, and be meetings. ready for the next uh, next yeah. day for a daily show, mm-hmm. and I, and yeah, exactly. And it was just like I just didn't want it enough to like put the energy into it. And there's part of me that wishes I had wanted it more because, like I said, I think I could have been a real solid middler. I don't think yeah. I could have been. I, don't I think you could have been higher than that, uh, Elliot. Like uh, we'll <laughs> see. I think yes. I also when I was when I was you know starting to come up before I like kind of semi quit stand up. I the the comic who was like the big up and coming comic there was John Mullaney and I would go see mm. his shows and it was one of those things where it was like well I can't do that like I like I'm not going to be as good as he is and so I think it was a, it was a little bit again of that that uh, gap between taste and and ability. Where it was like, well, I know I can't do that right now. So why, when I was when I was younger, I had a lot of like, well, if I'm not good at this right away, why am I bothering to do this? Which is a terrible, uh, which is a mm. terrible, terrible attitude to have. Yeah. because you're never going to do anything. Yeah, and so I kind of wish I had had more of that sense of like, I wish I, one, I wish I had started as like a teenager. There is a place in Milburn called Scotty's that has stand up, and I wish that like as a teen I had started doing stuff there because then you can, as a teen, you can be really bad. And it's fine, right? Because yeah. you have a lot of time, and you look at so many successful comics where it's like, oh, by the time they're in their twenties, they've been doing comedy for five, ten years, you know, already.
0: I, so. I, I know. Um, actually, uh, one comedian that I uh, listened to uh, their podcast. Um, I, actually a uh, uh, fantastic podcast, especially uh, for you, Elliot, uh, being that you're a fan of classic. Movies and like, mm-hmm. you know, like no, not 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 so much you know, like always the like the the, the more recent uh, releases, but like you know, you're taking Pelham One Two Three's and oh yeah, and yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and prior, but um, uh, Gilbert Godfrey. His, his, oh yeah, oh I li- his his podcast is one of my favorite. Well,
1: regularly. Frank yeah. Santo Padre, especially the the research that he does, yeah, it's that, amazing. But and you, uh, you look going to the, Gilbert. The- Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. You're saying, yeah. Let's yeah. see. Yeah. Look at the preparation that goes, that he, that that Frank does on that show. And I it's know. Astounding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as he says, we're just
0: scratching the surface. Um, but, uh, but Gilbert, he actually, he,
1: the first time that he went up for stand up, he was 15 years old. Yeah. Which mm. when I was 15, I was so uncomfortable in myself and so nervous. When I was a little, little kid, I had no nerves whatsoever and I, the older i got and the more uncomfortable in myself i got the more nervous i became and i i uh my wife has said my times, she's like she says most people when they're kids they're they're less they're um they're kind of like less nervous and as they get older they get more nervous but but the opposite happened with you which i think is true that the older i get the kind of less i care what what other people think yeah and so like i have a, le- a lot less it's easier for me to get up on a stage and talk than it would have been when i was 15 mm-hmm. but i wish i had tried mm-hmm. that you know it's the it's a you kind of need to want to do it so badly that you're willing to put up with rejection and bad audiences and things like that and and clearly with gilbert Gottfried and with a lot of comedians like that's what they wanted more than anything else that's what they wanted the most right and mm-hmm my fantasies when I was young were always to write and not as much to perform. I love, and so it's like, I didn't really get the performing bug until I was in college. And it's all, and I hate to say it. It's almost like that's it's, it's almost too late by then. And, uh, <laughs> and like I went to in my high school, a year behind me in high school was Anne Hathaway and mm-hmm. it was oh, like- y- your, your high school girlfriend. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, no. It, It's a you, long you time. And on, my, on my podcast, The Flophouse. It's a, it's a long running bit that we were that we went out, which is not the case. Um, she was in, I think she was in the same like valet carpool as my sister. That's about as close as it gets. <laughs> okay. when, but she, uh, but like she was the star performer at, at the. And it's a similar thing. She was the star performer at the high school even as a teenager. And so it's mm-hmm. like, and she would perform at at that at Paper Mill Playhouse, the theater that I mentioned earlier. So it was mm-hmm. like, oh, if that, and there was a. Uh, there was uh, there were a couple other b- very talented performers at the at the school. Uh, this girl Emily Blau and like uh, who would also perform at at the theater. And so it was like oh if they're in the school then like I'm not going to be as good as them. And I remember try- auditioning once for the high school play and not getting it and being like well that's it I guess I can I'm never going to do it. And like what a bad uh, attitude it is to have this mm. kid to be like I got this one rejection that's it. Whereas now it's like. Um, being a and now, I know that being a professional in the entertainment business is, you know, if you get one success for every eight rejections, then you're doing amazing. Then you're doing great, right? You know, then you're a professional.
0: Yeah, it, it, you know. it, it's it's when you look at the percentages, like uh, versus, like say, like a, a sports uh, analogy, it's like, oh, you know, one for three, yeah, you know, like oh, that that's a great batting average. You know, like you said, like like yeah. one for
1: eight, one out of ten, yeah, that that that's actually what you're shooting for because mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> because that, other other not there's, gonna... there's nobody who gets who who gets success every time you know or the, yeah. when they do they usually die young it's usually like somebody oh. <laughs> like there's like a young filmmaker or writer or something and it's like oh they came mm. out with with three amazing novels, or like you know you're you're uh you john patrick o'toole i think his name was who wrote confederacy of dunces where it's like he wrote one mm. amazing novel and then he died and it's like okay well that's i mean if he had lived then he might have had not successes but it's almost like we're like a like the filmmaker Jean vigo where it's you know it's only the only the ones who die young who don't have too many rejections. And the people who have long careers, it's full of rejections. You know, mm. right.
2: I had so, a friend. Yeah, so uh, I'm sorry, sorry Elliot, continue.
1: I was going to say so. But don't take I don't I'm not saying then the, t- the key to success is to die young. Don't any listener. Don't take that as the lesson. Don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. and, instead, and I, instead, live a long time and, and deal with rejection. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and actually, uh, I remember uh, at uh, one of the New York Comic
0: Cons, I, I, I went to the uh, the panel of um, Bob's Burgers. And uh, I, I, are you mm-hmm. familiar with uh, Eugene Meerman?
1: Yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah Eugene, like you, know, like, you know, said to the person, it's like, because I think someone actually wanted to be a stand-up, and mm-hmm. what well, was getting used to failure. It's like, and Eugene said, yeah, yeah, get used to it, but just fail upward. That's all.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you want with stand-up, it's like you want to get so used to failure that you start to enjoy it, that you that you that you start to get pleasure out of. The audience is not understanding what you're doing. And that was always when I, when I, the years when I did hang out at stand up clubs, that was the, the most fun was when a stand up would be on stage and he would tell a joke that the audience did not like. But you would hear the stand up in the back go, ah. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like one guy got it. And he's also laughing at how how poorly it was received by the audience. And so <laughs> you, you get to a point with professional comedy where you get more pleasure out of telling jokes that you know will annoy people and that are not good you know, than, than jokes that are like beautifully constructed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Um, the, j- j- jumping off uh, real quick, Hat, well, naturally not jumping off, but being you know, connected to uh, the, being that you mentioned it, The Flophouse. You started on uh, episode eight, uh, I Know Who Killed Me, uh, mm-hmm. Like, how, how did that come to be your your relationship with Dan McCoy and Stuart Wellington? How, how did you get to be part of this? And, you know, d- did you expect this to be the long running, you know, great show that it's been, you know, with know. live performances, etc?
1: I think if we had expected mm-hmm. anything out of it, we would have done a better job scheduling it in the very early years, because in the early <laughs> years, we would <laughs> just kind of do it real haphazardly and be like, Oh, it's been a while since we did an episode. We should probably do another one. Can you guys make tonight? Uh, I guess so. I don't know. And then, but, uh, Dan and I met through the, the comedy basement club that, uh, that I used that, to perform at. It was a, it was a club okay. called, called Juvie hall. That was on bond street in, uh, in New York in the basement of the Gene Frankel theater. And I don't know if the Gene Frankel theater is still there. Gene Frankel is no longer with us. He's long since passed, but the Gene Frankel theater might still be there. and, okay. And my friend Eric, he was running a space called Judy Hall. And I remember very well meeting Dan and helping him and Eric paint the place because we were painting it black so it would be a black box theater. <laughs> and he and I hit it off, and we became friendly. And he was also a just, you know, comedy writer and, and sketch performer. And he started doing the House podcast with him and two of his friends from college, Stuart Wellington – and uh, this other friend of theirs, Simon, who I've never met. And right. uh, and Stuart was and continues to be a bartender. He's now a bar owner. But I, I remember Dan saying that he really wanted to do a podcast with Stuart because Stuart was funny but was not interested in performing. And this was the only way to get it out. And Dan was looking <laughs> for a medium that was not yet like a professional that he he was like, where can we get on the in on the ground floor? Because it was a little too late to get into like web videos and websites. And podcasting was this new thing, right? And they had me on as a guest. I guess when Simon couldn't make it once, and then Simon moved away, and they brought m- me m- on. It
0: m- to- mysteriously m- disappeared into uh, Indiana, I believe, right?
1: Yes, and I've never <laughs> <it's>, I've never <laughs> probed too deeply into it. It's like, I don't want <laughs> to give horse in the mouth, but uh, <laughs> we we I joined them, and it became, and it really became like just a a a way to kind of have a reason to hang out regularly. And then especially mm-hmm. after I had children, it was like great to be like, Oh, well, I have to hang out with these guys every two weeks. Cause it's, you know, I, I, I wish I could stay home, but I got to go do this. Cause we've, you know, we've been doing it for so long and it was years when we were doing it just as a hobby. And we started, I don't know how long we were doing it before, before it felt like, Oh, people actually like a few people listen to it. And we started getting like word of mouth things. And if we right. had really been on the ball, I think we could have turned it into something really big. But instead, we were just kind of like, "This is great," and then just kept going. And <laughs> the and uh, we've never been I've never been really good at like taking advantage of like uh, breakthrough opportunities. Uh, but the what was I going to say? Oh, but the, and at a certain point, we started getting paid for it. We joined um, the Maximum Fund Network, and it was like, "Oh, okay, Correct. now we're making money from it." And you know, they started the podcast yeah about fourteen years ago. So I've been doing it for a little bit less than fourteen years. And it's astounding to me because we started when we were all in our early twenties, you know, and, or no, mid twenties. And Mm. uh, now I, for a moment, I thought I was younger than I was, Uh, but the, the, (laughs) and now there's like, you know, I don't think we'll ever be the biggest, We're never going to be like the top podcast, even on our network. But like our listenership is very steady and we enjoy doing it. And it, you know, we make enough now that, I don't have to worry as much when I'm out of work for a while, which now that I'm a rel- pretty much a freelance writer is is more often than I would like. Um, and you know, we'll just keep doing it until I guess one of us decides not to do it anymore. But it seems like it's going on. You know, I I, I, you know, I, I, I rue that day. I, I, it's like I don't want to do. think of that. <laughs> that. But like <laughs> the the idea that like I'm like oh like there's a possibility we'll be doing we'll have done this podcast for like 20 years at some point, which seems crazy and i was thinking how long can this thing go like if we did it for 30 years we'd have this archive of like us getting older in real time, you know, and uh, and going that's through true. all the all the stages of our lives while in the through the form of us talking about like Nicolas Cage movies and stuff like that. And, like, <laughs> the, Merry C- Cagemas, everyone! Oh yeah, yeah, Cagemas is coming up. Get 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 ready. Figure it out. Uh, what are you going to do for the holiday? But uh, it's a, it's just a, you know, it's I, I feel really lucky and grateful that they asked me to to be a part of it because I don't know that that's something that I would have thought to do on my own. Uh, to get into podcasting. And it's just been a really – it's been a, a really rewarding – as as a, as irritating as it is when you are involved in what's basically a business with friends of yours because right. you, the friendship starts to get overtaken at times by the business and show aspect of it and that you yeah. have to take a moment every now and then again to be like, wait, we're friends. Let's like have a conversation where we just talk about friend stuff and we don't talk about like this business that we do but uh, or this, you know, this show that we put out or scheduling. How but, different
2: uh, – I'm sorry, Elliot. Um, no, no, I was big, just yeah. a quick question: but How different, like you know, when Nick and I went to one of your Bell House events. How different is it doing the live Bell House event as opposed to you just, uh, you know, the, the three of you, um, uh, performing it in, in your respective apartments or together, you know, with no crowd?
1: I th- there's a there's a real so we do these live shows, yeah, often at, at the Bell House, of New York, and we're trying. Mm-hmm. We'd like to schedule another one over there because that's I feel that's still it's. The venue i think we feel the most comfortable in we just you know they treat us really well and it's uh and it used to be walking distance from my home before i moved across country so that was all really that was really great too it's the walking
0: distance you just need to you know yeah it's it's, it's just like a 10-day
1: walking distance (laughs) uh, the when we're when we're doing it you know we used to record all three of us in a room we'd watch a movie and then we'd immediately start talking about it and there's this and now we record you know yeah from our separate homes and there's Mm a there's like a kind of a, lax, a loss of energy there, which is too bad. Mm. But doing those live shows, it's it's super exciting to have an audience there. It feels like um, there's a, there's more pressure because when I'm doing it with just with Dan and Stu, I would say they're my audience, but in reality, I'm trying to annoy them as much as possible. So like, <laughs> I, so if I can make them laugh, that's great. But if I can irritate them, that's that's more valuable
2: to yeah, me. Mission and, to and, and
1: if I could quote Dan, uh, Dan for a moment, sigh yeah, yeah <laughs> it's a, but when we're doing those those shows like i really want the audience to enjoy it and i want to keep that energy up and yeah. not overstay our welcome we're really bad at ending the shows we kind of and i'm really like when i would do mm. those shows i talked about at the basement theater in new york when i would those shows could go two hours of me just kind of basically talking because when i'm on stage i have very little sense of how much time is passing and the the but it's really it's exciting and there's this element of, especially when we do like question and answer at the end, there's this element of like, you know, a wild cardness to it that uh, is very fun. And so doing those, it's like, you know, the whole day leading up to it, I'm a little anxious and then I'm very nervous right before we go on stage. I usually make sure to go to the bathroom like as close to going on stage as possible because my nightmare right. is always that we'll be in the middle of the show and I'll have to pee or something. and. Uh, well, you know, and I, the, the 30 seconds or so 45 seconds when we're waiting for the like intro music to finish without stage is mm-hmm. the worst. Cause it's like, I just want to get out there yeah. to get over with this moment where I'm nervous. And then once I'm actually on stage and can see the audience, then all the nervousness goes away. And it's like, oh, okay. They're all here to see us. They, like, it was a, it was a big thing for me when I realized like, oh, when I perform, the audience wants me to succeed. They want to enjoy the show. Right. right? No one is going there hoping that I fail. So no. it, it it takes that much pressure off. Where it's like they want you to succeed, so they're helping you to do it, and they're gonna laugh when you say something funny because they want to laugh, and they're gonna, and that's gonna make you funnier, and it'll help. It, you'll feel better. So it's like going out there knowing, like, oh, these are fans. And they want us, and we, t- and we tend to have pretty well mannered fans. They don't get yes. to, I, like I did um, uh, a Doug Loves Movies. podcast. Oh, right. I think oh I, and, right. and, and the fans. I, 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 I tried to get that from the archives, but yeah, like yeah, that's like. I wonder if it's not available yeah. anymore. It's, it was yeah. so long ago. And yeah. the, but the fans that they love that show, but they are like, rowdy and they're like hostile and like they'll throw I, I've been on to stage one. Yeah. And yeah it's super intimidating whereas flophouse fans are like a little more like they're drinkers which the bell house likes because they sell mm. a lot but they're like, like quiet respectful drinkers mm, <laughs> like they don't get too, they don't get too rowdy and <laughs> the, they're and they're very pleasant you know our fans tend to be very polite and very nice and generous and and they're very sweet um but I I, I, I want to say I you know, like, correct me if I'm wrong I think a lot of when i see
0: other flop house fans and that it's almost like a it's a reflection of you guys really like it, like it, it's kind of you know like the way that you guys come across to us i think it's like we're projecting that back to you
1: <laughs> oh that's right that's a that's a nice thing to say i hope mm-hmm. so i mean that's it's like the the thing that i'm i'm proudest about about the flop house which is it seems crazy to be proud about doing like essentially a nonsense podcast for for over a decade almost a decade and a half but like a is that the there is a real like fan community and they seem to be real mostly really nice to each other and I stay off the flop house Facebook page because I stay off Facebook entirely and Facebook pages have a have a habit of turning into uh, just like nonstop barrage wars but mm-hmm. uh, the but there's a real sense I feel like that like people meet and become friendly through the flop house and it helps people through times that they have difficulty and that's real like it's the thing the thing that I got from Mystery Science Theater and from Marvel Comics when I was younger, it was like this is something that I can, I can look to when I need it, and I can really rely on it when I need to get through times that are tough. And also, there's this kind of welcoming tone and this like, come on in, come on in and be a part of this world. Like this is, and there's other people like you out there. Like I right. hope that we're providing that a certain amount of that for people. Definitely. It's, it's it's a the thing about podcasting. This is my this is my podcasting spiel. Like the exciting thing about yeah. podcasting, <laughs> even more so than. TV or movies or, or even live performing things like that is that you're kind of like throwing your thoughts and feelings into the void, almost like a, a message in a bottle. And it's going to get picked up by people that otherwise you never would have met and you'd have no reason of knowing them, but mm-hmm. they're going to hear it and now they'll know a little bit of you. And hopefully, you know, at some point you come to know a little bit of them or at least you know that there are people out there. And so you know that there are people that you're connecting with. And it's just such a it's a very intimate medium, but it's a and mm-hmm. it's a medium that like you just connect with people in a way that you wouldn't otherwise, and people that other you know it it almost creates this kind of like this kind of invisible web around the country and around the world that you get to be a, a node in. That, that you, you don't even. Some might call other, it a, a no, world Wide no, web. In fact, a world, yeah, a web. Yeah, I really cool. shouldn't have used web. I should have used a different. You're <laughs> we excited yeah. about the new Spider-Man movie. Yeah, oh. always. Right. After after seeing that teaser trailer, that was a full length oh. trailer. That was basically oh just God, like the first yeah. 15 minutes of the movie condensed down. Yes. Uh, the uh, the, but like going to those live shows, it's just it, to 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 do a show and go to a place, go to another city. And feel like oh, there are all these people that I didn't know who want to hear who want to have fun with us tonight, and it's going to be a good time, and no one's going to be a jerk. And like the, it's a, it's 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 a really cool feeling. Like it's just yeah. a really cool, great feeling. And I miss doing those live shows. I'm hoping that things will get. We've been doing these kind of over over the internet live shows. September mm-hmm. 25th, we got one coming yes. out. Yes, yes. Uh, Super, Super Mario, Mario Brothers. Brothers. Super Mario Brothers will be talking about. I can't about wait. Uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Google. Uh, smart ticks or simple ticks? Simple ticks, I believe. Simple ticks. Google simple ticks. Uh, Flophouse, Super Mario Brothers, and it'll take you there. But it's a uh, like those. Those are fun, but it's not quite the same because I like seeing like the people that we're that we you know, talking to, and then afterwards, after every show, that we always have our like, you know, merch table signing line, and that's mm-hmm. in some ways that's the most fun part because you get to like meet the people that came to the show and no it's just it's just a really cool feeling and it's something that certainly when we were first start when I joined the podcast when we were doing it early on I did not think we were going to like get to go to like Toronto or you know um or like uh Chicago or yeah. you know or places like that or Boston or or Seattle and like do shows for people and have people like pay to see us come out there and like talk because also like we we do presentations at the top of the show, and those are written and yes. we plan them. Stews are not exactly written, but they're he, his are choreographed. <laughs> you could say, "But uh, the, I, 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 I love stews, though." Yeah. Oh, no, he's—he did. No, these are always the best. He did one <laughs> in Boston about the Fast and the Furious movies, that and <laughs> it turned into him having like a breakdown over the concept of cars. It was so funny, <laughs> but but from that moment on after those presentations, nothing in the movie, nothing in the episode is planned. We have our notes about what happened in the movie, mm. but we're just mm-hmm. talking through the movie and that people have the faith in us that we will be funny, you know, just talking, sitting down at a table for like an hour, uh, right. talking about, you know, Godzilla King of the Monsters or whatever mm-hmm. is, uh, or, um, you know, um, what other live ones have we done or like Hellboys or something <laughs> like it's a, it's a real it's a real boost that people have that are like, I trust enough that they're that they're going to be funny. That I'm going to pay to see them, you know, and, and including also, like,
0: as you uh, discussed earlier, the, the Q&A, like, you know, <laughs> you don't know what cues are going to be coming flying at you and mm-hmm. you know what A's you're going to have to be ready to. Uh, think. No. And, and the, in fact, the A's
1: are always new and the Q's can be very <laughs> can be very challenging. Yeah. And in fact, yeah,
0: the, you being on this podcast is because I have to cash in my uh, my my, my uh, question points. Okay. I, okay.
1: I, I I I was there at uh gods of Egypt and Oh, so you went to that show. Oh, so that was the show we did as part of the Cake house, Festival. Yeah, Cake House, and we were in like this sweaty gross basement and there were bugs <laughs> falling on people. Oh <laughs> yeah. wow. That was oh, I was yeah. thinking about I was thinking about that show the other day where I was like, That was that was the grossest place we ever did. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure and I bet that their upstairs is probably nice, but the downstairs it was just like that. They were literally yeah. like it, like bugs falling on people and falling on the table. <laughs> like the saw
2: basement or something.
1: Yeah, and it was <laughs> it was like a really the narrow room, and in. the table we were sitting at was right up against the front row of people, so it felt like at any moment. If you guys ever seen the poster to um to and Grain, where there's all these people being. Piled oh. into like a dump truck and being <laughs> right. like, like that. It felt like at any moment like that, people would just kind of come spilling over us, you know? It's, it's like World like a anyway. or something. People. Yeah. Oh, I'm amazed. That, uh, thank you for coming to that show. That was that was a little uh, weird video. But anyway, but you got a question to ask. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I
0: actually, no, I, I got my uh, question uh, answered uh, that yep. night. Oh. Uh, and like I said, you, you gave me question points. So this was me cashing in my question points. Oh, I see. It, I
1: see. Oh.
0: And, you know, just to uh, segue really quick. Uh, my question was, if, you guys, like, if the Flophouse was, say, Mystery Science Theater, like, what movies uh, and, like, characters can you uh, picture yourself be, uh, doing host segments oh, and you're like wow. – I, I think uh, Stu was uh, one of the uh, – uh, or is it the, the snake uh, snake men from uh, Jonah Hex, I think, was Stu's <laughs> yeah. answer.
1: Yeah, because there's – there's haven't seen the movie Jonah Hex. There's a gut part where a guy has to fight a snake man in a pit, and the snake man comes out of nowhere, is never – you don't see him again. I think he's killed in that scene. But, like, and it's yeah, just it's like, like... – you're like, what more interesting movie is going on <laughs> You know, off to the side of this one? Uh, but Stu <laughs> loves that snake man. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, but, but
0: yeah, again, now s- segueing, h- how did you get like involved in mystery science theater? Like I, I know you yep. were a fan and, and again, mm-hmm. the Flophouse is in a ways like a, a bit of an homage to, uh, you know, t- to the classic certainly, mystery science certainly theater. Certainly
1: heavily inspired by it. I mean, the mystery science theater is what introduced me to the idea of watching a bad movie for fun, you know, and yeah. um, <laughs> the, and it's something that I've, profited from because you can learn more about writing and how to write well from watching a bad movie and taking apart why it didn't work than watching a good movie because a good movie is like a diamond you're like i don't know how to make this but like you know a bad movie is an airplane that doesn't work and you're like oh well the, the wings are the wrong length and like this propeller is you know <laughs> it, it doesn't turn like, but uh, like i know how to use i know how to, how to fix that but uh I you know it was my favorite show growing up, and the when I was younger, if people asked me what, what what TV shows would you want to write for, that and the Daily Show were the two top shows. And once I was up at the Daily Show, it was like Mr. Science Theater. I wish I could write for it, but I was a kid when it was on the air, and it was in Minneapolis, and I was in New Jersey, and right. they and like uh, they so I saw that, but I'd always wanted to work on it, and they announced the Kickstarter campaign for that first what became the first Netflix season, and I was like. Okay, I can donate to this, but like that's not like right. the full. That's not the full contribution I want to make. And I tweeted, uh, I was like, how do I get involved in this? How do I work on this? And some somebody tweeted back and they're like, well, you, if you contribute a certain amount, then you uh, you, know, you get to be on camera for a moment. And I was like, that's not what I'm talking about. Like I need to <laughs> I need to make it mine. This thing that I love. I need to I need to become a part of it. And. Um, uh, my friend John Hodgman, who I'd met through the Daily Show, mm-hmm. he—your wait, 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 friend John Hodgman? Well, we're, we, this, <laughs> no. we went through—we went through a period where we, we were—we were enemies, and then frenemies, and now just friends. <laughs> in fact, I owe him a phone call. I have to call him back. The—the hmm. uh, the, he sent me Joel Hodgson's email, the creator of the show, who was mm-hmm. ru- who runs the show, and he said, "This is an email I have for him. If you're really serious, like you could just get in touch with him." And so I essentially like cold emailed Joel Hodgson and said. I'm a oh, big wow. fan of the show. Like this is, I just finished working. I just left the daily show. I just finished working the daily show. Like this is where I want, you know, I, I really beefed it up. Like I won this many Emmys and, you know, did this much stuff. And, <laughs> and, and that's I WGA really, as well, right? Yes. And they are they are both WGA jobs, which was yep. as the, I, I don't remember the last thing I did was that wasn't WGA, which is good. Cause I'm not really supposed to do anything. That's not WGA. Now I'm, <laughs> okay. union mem- I'm a very proud union member. I have to stick with, you know, I should, as much as possible, I only do union yep. jobs um, the, and uh, the, so, and so I emailed him and he wrote back and he goes, oh, well, we're looking, we're just starting to put together the writing staff now. And we're looking for like a head writer, like let's talk. And he and I, we talked on the phone a bunch of times and we kept trying to set up dates to meet and they would fall through. And I was like, someone else is going to get this job like this, like mm. I got to meet him so I can make my case. And eventually he was, he lives in Pennsylvania and I was in New York and he's like, there's a, there's a diner in New Jersey I like to go to to i think it was maybe it was an edison i can't remember that he's like i like to go to to meet people because it's easier to get there from new york than than where i am in philadelphia in pennsylvania mm-hmm. and uh the he goes uh he's like let's meet there and it was like meeting i had never met him in prison before i'd been a fan of his since i was a kid and mm-hmm. but it was like it was like a spy meeting like to be like meeting someone <laughs> going oh, to, go, just going to, back in his career agent J <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah right so the uh and uh, going there at like this random diner in New Jersey to meet with him. And we just hit it off real quickly. And um, and I was kind of in from that point. And it was my then agent at the time. is no longer my agent. I remember he was like – I was like, can they – they want to know if they can announce me during the Kickstarter campaign is, that I'm going to be involved. He's ah. like, let's hold off on that and let's see if it really happens. Like I don't know. And one of the reasons that he eventually was no longer my agent was because in that he made it he was getting in the way of me taking that Ah, job. hmm. And, uh, but the, but eventually like they hit their Kickstarter goals and we started up and, um, (laughs) and just, it was, I thought someone was about to walk into the room. Uh, and, uh, it was just like, um, I don't know. It just worked out really well. And working with Joel was like a really, it was a fantastic experience and he's a real, like, he's like in the best sense of the word, like a real mad scientist. And it was a way of doing a show that was very different from the daily show. And I also learned a lot from, but also it was the, the dream of like, I'm writing riffs for the bots. And one of the best things about it was that Jonah, the the host Jonah Ray and I became very good friends. And like, Mm. you know, it's, I was felt very thankful that I got to work with him and that now we're friends. We don't live too far away from each other, you know, and um, this, there's a current season now that unfortunately I was too busy to, be working on the riffs but i'm working on the host segments and oh jonah, excellent like, you are excellent yeah, That's yes great to I'll, hear on, and uh so jonah like will stop by my house and he'd be like okay here are the host segments let's talk about you know here here are the drafts we have and here's what i think about them. we'll talk about what to do with them and like the you know during the second netflix season he and i were working out of this office that he rented in south pasadena and it was just like me like the first half of the day we'd be there with the writers and the second half would be just me and him picking the picking the riffs and he would be like every twenty minutes, we gotta get up and stretch. It's not good to sit for more than twenty minutes. And so he'd set a timer every twenty minutes, and those twenty minutes they would fly by, and it would be like, oh, written, I can imagine we've written four jokes, or like three jokes. and It's been twenty minutes. Like we're never gonna finish oh. this. Like it was, it was a really, it was a, it was a great experience. And I just wish that um, that they like if I could do that show all the time and uh and afford to support my family then i would i would totally do it but because the way that show works and how it's not it's not a regular year in year out job it's just mm-hmm. you know right i gotta do other stuff and, sometimes and again the, the way it's coming back now it, it is quite different than it yes in previous iterations yeah, too. that's true and i and i'm really hoping that this will be like the the sustainable model where they can keep yes. it going you mm-hmm. know for as long as possible because it's it's a show that it's such a unique show that it's hard for networks to program it. It's hard for them to see how it fits into their stuff. And yep. I remember with Netflix, they were like, our algorithm will drive people to it. And it's like, how can the algorithm drive people to it? It's unlike every other show that you have. Yeah. on you know, there's, there's no, it's like, oh, if you like this, then you'll like. It's like, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> so it's a, my hope is that they can really harness the, the enthusiasm of the fans and the love fans have for the show to, to keep it going. Forward, which would be great which would be wonderful and like uh, the they, they've got you know it's a show where everyone's working on it because they want to work on it which is not always the case in professional television you know right. everyone is there because they want to make this show and they're excited about doing this show which right. is exciting yeah and and I love the, the, the fact that you're going to actually have two sets
0: of um, I, I, how do you want to say not adventurers but you know you're, you're going to have Jonah again oh, and his set suggests, of bots yeah what's that Oh yeah, yeah, subjects. Yeah, we, yeah and yeah. you'll have Emily Marsh now, and yeah. her set of bots. Because I saw her live on the uh, the the last tour, and she was fantastic.
1: I unfortunately have only gotten to see a little bit of her of her performing in the in the shows, and I'm mm-hmm. excited about writing for her because it's a new voice to to bring on and a new character, and and building the host personas is always really fun. It's like a it's like a real game of trial and error because you're figuring out who this character is, and you only have the host segments to really figure it out you just have this little bit of the show but right the the, the last couple live tours unfortunately they always seem to be coming to Los Angeles on days that I'm out of town so this oh. so i have like the next <laughs> there's a are they, doing, are they doing another one they are right uh, yes that they have scheduled for i think 2022 if i'm not mistaken yes. yeah. and i think i think yeah. i have the la date on my calendar already and i'm like i'm not doing anything else this day like i'm gotta <laughs> like i gotta see it <laughs> but uh the oh. Because because i because I've done some writing work for the for the live tours and then I don't get to see them and it's like oh you know, you wow see the stuff that you're doing that was yeah that was the the most fun thing about or one of the most fun things about the Daily Show was that like you write a joke in the morning you tape it in the afternoon it's on air that night you're seeing it on but and it was right. there's no other only late night shows work that quickly basically mm-hmm. and, yeah that's the the turnaround of reaction. Is, yes, yeah. and it's both – it burns you out, but at the same time, it's super exciting to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I wrote that at 2 o'clock, and now it's on TV <laughs> at 11 o'clock. You know? <laughs> but you also start to – there. there's a thing that I have where – and unfortunately, I should go pretty soon after this. But I yes, absolutely. Because I, I think we're reaching, the end of, we're reaching the end of nap time for my three-year-old. But uh, uh, understood, the, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll the, race uh, through very quickly uh, okay. another couple Excellent. of things. But uh, the uh, there's a – uh, and i apologize we would we, we'd be able to cover more stuff if i didn't talk so long all the time the, there's no a, no please <laughs> that uh there i every time i'm working on something it kind of yeah, instead of me lifting up in my mind to that level instead that thing comes down a little bit so like i i co-produced a montage for the oscars when when john was hosting it when oh we yes in, mm-hmm. the, the, it, the, the, the cowboy yeah the cowboy the montage, gay cowboy yes yeah, mountain was nominated and uh, it was like <laughs> Instead of being like, wow, I can't believe I did something for the Oscars, I watched it on TV and was like, oh, okay, so like this is like the fake Oscars. Oh, I see. And so (laughs) it got to a point with The Daily Show where I started being like, oh, this is a show that we make. And it gets piped into the houses of the people who work on the show. And if I was walking down the street and I'd see through someone's window that they were watching The Daily Show, I'd be like, oh, they get that channel that the people who work at The Daily Show get that shows The Daily Show? Like, <laughs> So if, it's another reason that it's nice to do the live stuff because it, you're seeing it with an audience and you're like, okay, now I know this is something other people are seeing. Like mm-hmm. this isn't just a thing that I made that I'm, I'm watching by myself at home, you know? Right. excellent that, excellent okay let's what else do you want to talk we'll do okay. lightning round yeah, lightning round.
0: Okay. yeah okay. for those that again we we mentioned before that uh elliot uh works on spider-man and the x-men but elliot's r- uh recent uh, uh project
2: he's got visuals
1: yep hold on a second <laughs> <laughs> it's like maniac new york Maniac of New York. It's a comic book from Aftershock Comics. Uh, it is a story I've been wanting to work on for years and years, where ever since I was a young lad and saw the poster for Jason Takes Manhattan and was like, this can be amazing. And then years later saw it and was like, this is not what I was imagining no. all these years. And this does not so match that, what was in your brain of... No, not at all. So the premise of this story is that... Uh, uh, a mass killer, an unkillable mass killer, as as J- as Drew Wellington says, a death elemental, uh, shows up in, <laughs> yes. in New York and is just killing his way through New York. Uh, and everyone is like, "We've got to stop him. This is terrifying. We, you know, this is, we can't allow this to happen in New York City, the greatest city in the world, to have this this killer running loose." But it's very hard to stop him. He's a death elemental. You can't shoot him. He just shrugs it off. You know, and he doesn't. Right. He has the <laughs> The intelligence of of a creature, you know, of an animal, even though he's in the body of a man. He's right. And so all he, oh, 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 he says is her. He just says her. and uh, <laughs> he wanders from he just wanders around. And when he sees people, he goes into a killing frenzy, and then he wanders off. And uh, he's, he's very heavily influenced by the man thing, uh, Steve Gerber's uh, version. Oh of the wow! Man. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, the and so it's years later now in the city, and the city government, the state government, the federal government has decided it's just easier if we just we just live around him. And so New Yorkers <laughs> have to stop used to the idea that they go about their daily business and every now and then this guy pops up and kills some people and people go, Oh, that's too bad, and they go about and they just assume that's never gonna happen to me because how could it? I'm the star of my own tale, you know. Right and <laughs> and so the story is about um this new this aide to the mayor who has who has lobbied to become the head of the mayor's maniac task force, which is at this point, just her. They've really they've defunded right. it because it's it's the, her job is essentially now just to be a scapegoat when the when the maniac attacks. But she, driven by personal reasons that we find out as the series goes on, she is dedicated to stopping the maniac, this thing, and she uh, reaches out to uh, this NYPD detective who was essentially put on the maniac beat as a punishment for testifying against her partner who shot someone. Uh, As we find out later, that's a spoiler, I guess, a spoiler backstory. But, uh, and she is jaded and uh, has to be convinced that no, no, maybe they can, maybe they can do something about this problem. And uh, the, this new mayor's aide, her, her first day intersects with a day when the maniac wanders onto a subway train and is just killing his way through the train from one car to the next. And the, so it's, the maniac
0: of Pelham one, two, three, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm, really,
1: I'm really wearing my influences hard on my sleeve. Yes. <laughs> so take a, the taking of Pelham one, two, three is, is my favorite mm. movie of all time. And uh, oh. the, and so they, the, the city government would rather shut the doors on this train and not let anybody off and just keep it running than let the maniac escape and plague the city. And so the, these two heroines are going to try to see if they can save anybody from this train. And uh, it's a five-issue series. The collected edition is coming out in October uh, from AfterShot. The first I want to ask out. you. Oh yeah, the the, <clears throat> the trade paperback is coming out in October. Um, the art is by Andrea Moody, and it's gorgeous. He does such a uh, great yeah, job he's with it. fantastic. He's amazing. And uh, the it was really funny because it was like uh, they were like we, we uh, they were like we think he'd be great for it, and I'm like he would be great for it, and I was like wait a minute, we've worked together before. We did a, we did a story years ago that I forgot about for an American Vampire anthology, but uh, the uh, that the art looks great and so the new the trade paperback, paperback comes out in October and there will be a second series coming out next year in 2022 called The Maniac of New York B- The Bronx is Burning and uh, Ooh, this like one it. I think the I think the first trade paperback I think the title coming out is The Maniac of New York The Death Train and this one is the next one is uh, The Bronx is Burning and uh, I just actually sent in it's the next one is a four issue series but the issues are a little longer and I just sent in the script for issue four to Ooh. my editors. And I was like, a, there's some stuff in it that I've wanted to do since we started with the first issue of, of the Death Train series. Uh, and the in the second series, it's uh, it, Harry goes to a school. Oh, all sorts of terrible oh, things boy. happen. And oh, geez. Uh, I, didn't, I, I, I will say ahead of time for the squeamish, I did not have the heart to go as far with, with the school sequence as could have been done. But, uh, understood, as, understood. As, as, I think when I was younger, I might have gone crazy with it. But as a father, I was like, I don't, I'll, you know, I'll, yeah, I'll be squeamish here. He does kill people at school, but not it's not as bad as it could be. And uh, and there's a there's a seat. So the the opening of the first issue, it's uh, this this what becomes called the Times Square massacre, where it's it's New Year's Day twenty sixteen, New Year's Eve twenty sixteen, and the maniac appears in Times Square and just sla- is slaughtering people, but you don't see it. You just kind of see the aftermath of it. And there's a sequence in the fourth issue, the final issue of the second series, "The Bronx is Burning," where I feel like we are, for a few pages at least, we're paying off what that would have been like in a different ah, setting, in a different okay. place, but playing what that would have been like to be just in this, uh, in a in a in a big crowd where the maniacs go nuts. And the it's a it's a scary book. There's some funny things about it. It is a it's a, it's become a relatively relevant book uh just in terms of the idea of a a problem that people have to put up with because uh there's not there's not really the will on a governmental level to handle it and there will continue to be things like that throughout my life and human history so it'll unfortunately never never be unrelevant but Mm -hmm. uh but it's a but what it really is in a long way is it's like it's the slasher movie i wanted to see when i was young and didn't get to see and uh, and characters that I w- I've wanted to write for a long time. And I'm finally getting the chance to write them. And, uh, the reaction to the first series was really positive and it sold much better than I thought it would. And so I'm really thankful that I get to do the second series and I'm hoping it sells well enough that we can do a third one, you know, cause well, I've got more, more maniac, more maniac in me, you know? Excellent. <laughs> and,
0: and, and thank you for also letting me know when the, uh, the, the trade is coming out because my local uh, comic book shop, I was there yesterday and I told them, we, we have you on the show. And they're like, yeah, when, when's the trade coming out?
1: And it's like, oh, oh, I, I'll
0: I, ask Elliot. Out. It's
1: coming out in October. It's in time, right in time for Halloween. For Halloween. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's where
0: yeah. Uh, somebody, the, the prior time I was there, asked, and you know what, it's, like, I haven't been to a comic shop before the pandemic. Do you have any good horror uh, comics? I'm like, oh. hey, I know one. And mm-hmm. the, the same thing, the the, the one, uh, it's the son of the shop owner. He went, it's like, oh, yeah, Maniac in New York. That's good. Yeah, but- yeah, they had one. They had one comic uh, left,
1: uh, issue four. <laughs> oh, okay. So, well, yeah. Well, thank you for spreading the word. I, I mean, it's been it's been selling well, which is great. The first two issues went into second printings, which is the first time yeah. I think I've ever done anything that went into a second and, printing. In uh, fact, that's I, 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 was, I
0: have a second uh, second printing of issue two because I met
1: your letterer Taylor Esposito oh, at yeah. Comic Book Day. <laughs> the uh, the I, he, he loves it too, by I the could, way. <laughs> oh, he's. He, I mean, he does such amazing work on it, and yeah. The. Uh, like the I I feel like we just got a great team working on it 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 look it's like this is the book that I had in my head when I when I was first thinking about it and you know then first writing it and it's um I just I'm so glad that Aftershock uh was on board and and was was excited about doing it because it's it's they've they're they've been really great and easy to work with and uh they, it's just, it, it's a great looking book. Like the production on it looks fantastic. Definitely. Taylor's letters look great. Andrea's art looks great. Like the I was going to say, really and cool. especially like the watercolor that really yeah. makes it, like it pop and, and, and really sets a scene. Oh yeah. His, 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 the way he, he paints the colors is for the, for the mood he creates is great. And I love his facial expressions. Like he's such a at very nuanced. And it feels like, I feel, uh I like, a, I can write in a script. I can be like, so I can be like Zelda, surprised but kind of in an annoyed way, and he's like get and he gets that or like um, the, <laughs> it's so like like literally like uh, like just like Gina thinks this is total BS like and she and he knows what, <laughs> what kind of faces to be. his his character acting is just is just fantastic in it, you know. Excellent. And, uh, the yeah, the, and there there was a time you know in, there's a, this school in the second series, and I was like. And I was really like, I realized, I didn't really describe, I didn't give him like photo references to what like a New York public high school looks like, like a PS looks like. Oh, and, right, and, right, And I was like, okay, well, here's what I was thinking of. And he goes, well, what, this is what I drew. And it looked just like the picture that like, he had already drawn one. It looked just like the picture that I was sending. And I'm like, no, I don't know. <laughs> I about, so, so, at don't that know, point, worry. did you say, get out of my mind? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was a, I've been really lucky to work with. And in, in, I feel like in the comics work I've done, I've never worked with an artist who didn't like, uh, get what I was saying and bring it up, you know, even a level above what I was planning. And, like, I've written two kids' books, uh, Horse mm-hmm. Meets Dog and Sharp and Hippo, and the artists I work with yes. on that, on with Tim Miller on Horse Meets Dog and with Andrea Cerumi on Sharp and Hippo. Like, they – yeah, it's with with both of them, it was like, oh, you reached in my head and you pulled out what I was imagining it looked like and, <laughs> and put it on the page. So I've been well, – Where I've can been, uh,
2: pe- people who are listening to get uh, – purchase that? On, on your um, website or
1: – Oh, I wish I, I should get a website. That's a good point. I should. Oh. The, uh, no, but the uh, the the two kids books are through through Harper Harper Kids. So they're okay. they should be available pretty much at any bookstore. I would say go to yes. your local independent bookstore. If they don't have it, order it through them. If you don't have a local independent bookstore, then you can get it through you know Amazon or anywhere else. But but uh, but always better to support in any like uh, right there's a uh, I guess if you're in New Jersey, if you're near Maplewood then go to words bookstore that's mm-hmm. in my dad's right. hometown. And uh, the it's a, uh, that's a great bookstore. If you're in Brooklyn uh, then go to um, uh, why can I not remember? Uh, this is terrible. The bookstore that I went to like once a week when I lived in the park slope forever. Hold on. Oh, um, sure. oh community books. I'm sorry. That's the name. Of community it. Books. Yeah. Okay. Then uh, then go to community bookstore on seventh Avenue. Uh, those are two great independent bookstores that I, but really wherever you are, find the, if you have an independent bookstore, go in there, see if they have it in the kids section. Mm-hmm. If they don't, ask them to order it. Um, they can order Maniac in New York, the trade for you probably too. Um, but or if, you, if you have a comic book store in town, go to your comic book store for that. Yeah. That's and, what and the if comic they, stores are for. And, and if right. they
0: didn't have the the first run of Maniac New York, ask them to get the trade. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and And tell them to get ready for volume two. Of, you know, of the uh, yeah, the
1: me next two. And- in New York. The Bronx yeah. is burning. 2022. Uh, it's not out for you. Can't pre-order it yet, but just tell them. They'll so they remember it. But yep. uh, Leah, uh, we're a big uh, we're a big bookstore family in my in in my house. Uh, my wife's a librarian. She used to work at a book, great bookstore in Sonoma, California, called Readers. If you're in northern if you're in north the Bay Area, that's a great independent bookstore to go do to, too. If you're there in Sonoma, go to Readers and get stuff. Uh, we're good friends with the with the owner, and he's great. But uh, the we're we're a, we're a real book family. There's no we've said to our kids many times like we're not going to buy you like we're not if we go somewhere we're not going to buy you a souvenir necessarily, but if we go to a bookstore like you're going to walk out with books. Like it's hard for us not to buy books. And excellent the and it's why you can see behind me the the bookshelf and piles of books that I haven't Oh yeah. <laughs> excellent that are sitting on the excellent. floor of my bedroom. But um, how many how many of those books
2: came from uh, the Chelsea Barnes and Noble?
1: What's crazy is, yeah, I still have books on there from that I bought when I was there that I haven't read yet, which is nuts. And it's my wife will be like, "Oh oh no, carrying this book around since before we met." Like, can you not? And I'm like, "No, because I'm going to read it." Like, oh no! And and wait, you're stacking them. It's like, please don't say. It's like all of a
0: sudden you're you're ready to read them, and all of a sudden you drop your glasses. Like, no, there's going to be time. There's time
1: now. (laughs) When when, uh, we moved from uh, one of the great things about working at the Daily Show was that we got so many books from people who wanted to be guests on the show and the, the talent book at the t- guest book at the time, Hillary Kuhn, every month or so you just hear on the PA system, free books, free books, free books. Yeah. Upstairs, free Ooh. books. And she had laid out all the, all the, come, the, the, uh, the books that had been sent to her. And I'm, I'm a big history reader and biography reader and stuff like that. And I would take these huge piles of books. And so in our Brooklyn apartment, there were these, you know, Six foot stacks of books all over the bedroom, and when we moved to California, my wife was like, "You're not taking those books with you. Like you can, like, you can take some books, but you are not taking every all book that books. you have not read yet." And I'm like, "All right, that's fine." But I've been slowly—I remember some of them—and I've been slowly uh, Re- Reintegrating them into, <laughs> them into the pile. Oh yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there's there are a few there are a couple books on there that I bought. Uh, there's a there's a book of Philip K. Dick short stories that I bought at the Chelsea Barnes Noble that has been consistently on my to read shelf for. Yeah. For almost 20 years now, it's like someday I'll get to it. Someday I'll read that book of Philip K. Tech stories. It'll happen. Right. You know.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And, 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 and being that you're a, a history file, uh, like uh, if you're looking for a good history podcast, um, a comedian and friend of mine, uh, KP Burke, has a great uh, podcast called American Loser about the, the the stories of history that basically got regulated to like a paragraph in your you know textbook back in school. It's like, okay, let's delve a little more into this. And some of these characters that you've never heard of, but it's like, why did we not hear about
1: them? Oh, that's, I'm going to have to listen. I'm not familiar with that one. I'm going to have to listen to it. Thanks for the recommendation. They, the, uh, it's funny, American Loser, when I was a, when I was younger, I really wanted to write a screenplay about Charles Couteau, the man who shot James Garfield. And I, wanted, in, I was going to call it American Loser. In, in fact, oh,
0: wow. And that's insane, Elliot, because I believe the first – Episode of American Loser is that is the story of Garfield and Charles Cattell. I'm trying to remember if it's Garfield or uh, who's the other one? Ah, the, it's one of the first couple of episodes, is
1: yeah, oh, I you know, gotta the, the, it. yeah, because he's what truly one of the truly one of the one of the one of the most pathetic people in in American history and just like uh, oh, terrible, but yeah, I and, we, like a, and, and when you think of
0: about like when you delve into him and you get into oneida <laughs> that's oh, the yeah. people that make kids it. like it's like wait hold on wait, that, that was kind of like a wait hold on a second I, I i i think of that it's like it's something on a wedding registry not a <laughs> it's <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's like wait hold on they warped his brain wait hold on what yeah, happened it's here a,
1: <laughs> it's a he's like a guy he's a guy who could not get laid and ended up channeling that into shooting the president of the United States. Right. Like that yeah. seems to
0: be his story. Uh, and, 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 and is and uh, who, who died? I forget how many
1: days later, like, Oh, it was it like was months 20 days, days yeah.
0: or, or 30 was, days yeah. later.
1: Oh, more than he was. Garfield was, was lingering for months. And there, the something yeah. I do want to write is I've wanted to write. And I, and I've start I've done all the research on it is a script about Chester Arthur, who was, Arthur, who was Garfield's vice, vice president became president when Garfield died. And, mm-hmm. He did not want to be president. It was, and there for months, there were all these news reports where they're like, Oh, Garfield's dying. He's not going to make it. And they would put the flags at half mast in New York, and and Arthur would be like, No, 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 and hey, hey, like, oh, no. no and so he's doing better. And they pull the flags up, and Arthur would be like, Oh, okay, re- relief. And eventually he became president, and he was in, except for uh, one or two bad things he did, uh, he was a fairly solid president.
0: Yeah, so, and and, and yeah. I got to tell you, I, I miss presidents or people too. Yeah, oh, uh, you, you was, and Alexis Coe. That 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 was a great show. And uh, it was although a, I, was a, I I think that there needs to be a disclaimer on that now too. So,
1: oh well, that's yeah. <laughs> well, we, yeah. that was a that was a that was a podcast I did for Audible with with the historian Alexis Coe, and we were going to do an episode for every president. We got about halfway through. I yeah. had my I had my piece I wanted to do for a Trump episode, but we never got to it, which is. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, okay. Like, that's that, yeah, you know, but I don't think we would have been liked like talking about him too much, but, uh, no, the, I, I, I really, but I really wanted to do a thing about his relationship with his dad, which was not healthy. But, uh, but mm-hmm, we got right. to do that was such a cool job because it was like, we got, to, it was like, okay, we're doing Rutherford B. Hayes. I'll read all the books on Rutherford B. Hayes, which is not that many. And it was, too, we, we'd look for people to interview that were interesting. And so, like, um, we did this episode on Theodore Roosevelt. And taxidermy was one of his big hobbies for yeah. much of his life, so especially as a young man. And so, like, we went to we went out to Queens to interview like the last taxidermist working within New York City, and he was a real he was a real character. And I asked him a question <laughs> that I think really weirded him out. Where I, was like, uh, I said, "Could you could you like like hunt a uh, kill a cow and then carve a steak from it?" And then, like, get it mounted, but leave a space where the stake was. Like, leave a slot where you cut the stake out, and, and so you could have it. And you could be like, have a, have that a little part. sign
0: that says "yum."
1: Yeah, and he was like, and, and he was so he was like, I haven't really heard of that. Like, it was it was such a <laughs> uh, it was great. It was if you can if you can go out to Queens and meet a guy you never would have met before and really weird him out, then that's then what are the reason to be a podcast host, you know? So and, and I'm want. sure it's like he'll probably be easier to find because. Are there many calls for tween uh, queens taxidermists? You know? not these <laughs> days. Not anymore. Mm-hmm. The business is all falling apart. I guess you get not a lot, a sure. lot fewer calls for mounting animals in Queens these days. But not sure, it's um, good. But 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 for uh, other stuff that uh,
0: Elliot has done, please listen to the Flophouse podcast.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, yeah. If, if you can, also please check out uh, Elliot's latest show, Housebroken, on uh, Fox oh, yes. on Mondays. Uh, my my wife and I love the show.
1: Oh, and, awesome. and, and, and especially
0: the episode you wrote, Boomsday.
1: Uh, oh, thank you. Fantastic. I got, to, I got to write a Fourth of July episode where all the it Housebroken is a show. Uh, it's an animated show on Fox about a a dog that runs a therapy group for other pets. And uh, <laughs> really, right there. And it's it's such I think it's such a funny show, and I really love working on it. I love the 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 showrunners Jen and Gabby, Jen Crittenden and uh, Gabby mm. Allen. They're they're like it's a. It's, it's just such a fantastic show to work on, and I think the show is really funny and really like, fun and smart. And Totally the, uh,
0: agreed.
1: It's on uh, – the, the season is just about to end on Fox, but all the episodes are up on Hulu. All and right. we're going to do uh, – there's a second season next summer that we're writing right now, and uh, we're going to write – more episodes for the future after that i think so it's i i that was one where i was waiting for a lot of this year to find out if if we were going to get to do more episodes and if i was going to get to to return for it and i was so happy that that fox renewed it and that i get to return for it it's just it's a super fun show to write and it was such a it you know we're all working remotely now but it was so it was such a like a it was such good medicine for me that during the real real depths of the of the quarantine times, the lockdown times, the pandemic that I was instead of having to go into work and like write jokes about the pandemic that it was like, all right, we need something funny for this cat to say. It was like, (laughs) yes, that's
0: great. (laughs) And that that there was an episode of of where the cats were basically doing a
1: cats yo! Oh, it was that the, was fantastic was like a cat's musical and stuff yes. and the, like <laughs> i've gotten to write some songs for it which has been great And but that like uh, just that I, I can be like okay today i'm gonna go into work and i'm gonna write some jokes for a really like a really sex-obsessed turtle this is like, what, <laughs> like, show, like i don't know yes. what else i could ask for out of my career right now but i got to that i got mm. to do a couple seasons of a show where robots make fun of movies and i get to do <laughs> a, a show now that has like that where it's animals getting into trouble and and saying silly things and uh, it's like I've been I've had a very I've had a very uh, lucky career very much so and I think um, as long as I get to write for the Marx Brothers at some point I'll have checked all the boxes and uh, so, <laughs> so and, and if that happens
0: please let me know because I I I'd be quite interested in. Seeing how that happens because yeah, no. what?
1: So I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. I'll see. I'll, I'll, get a, I'll see. Well, if I, I, get a, I, I, I do so know that
0: Chico, Chico needs the money, so yeah. Chico, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they have to,
1: Even beyond the grave. Yeah, Chico needs the money. Hi, oh. Chico. That's but, like whenever, whenever, whenever Gilbert Godfrey does his old Groucho impression where he's like, oh, yeah. Like, back back then, day, we would send yeah. what were called letters and we put these things called stamps, stamps on them and you put them in the mail. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> but great. but uh, Elliot, thank you so yeah, so much you. for being our guest today, and, and 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 proving that hey, guys from Jersey, yeah, we, we are funny, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, we're, <laughs> it's
1: a funny state. It's a real funny state. Well, right. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I really appreciate it, and and uh, uh, it was super fun. It was great talking to you guys, and uh, the yeah. If it's it makes me, I was just in I was just in New Jersey for the first time, you know, in in almost two years, and it was. Uh, it's just makes me it, it I, I, I I have a newfound newfound pride and love of of the state that was once my home that I will never live live in again I live in California now I <laughs> yeah, never, wow. gonna, I'll never <laughs> have to shovel snow being there I was like I don't remember it being this humid this is crazy but it was but anyway <laughs> but thanks so thanks so much for having me it was thank uh,
2: you it was Elliot a, a total it joy. Was thank wonderful. You.
1: Yes and Thanks. again please check
0: out Flophouse House podcast please check out Maniac, Maniac in New York please check out House on Fox please t- t- check out Sharko and Hippo and uh Horsemeets Dog and any of the other great uh things Oh, uh, the uh, Netflix Mystery Science Theater 3000
1: Oh yeah Mystery Science Theater 3000 mm-hmm. Yes be- beautiful of the beautiful
0: yeah yes uh, be- beautiful time travelers lodge and uh <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I had to fight so much.
0: Yes, we appreciated it. That's all I got to say. We appreciated it. That, yeah, I that
1: appreciated was, it because that was for the hometown
0: crowd. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that right. was for us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> One for the team.
0: Yeah. And and again, thank you so much. For What Exit Jersey Stories, I've been Nick Franco.
2: I'm Pete Riario.
0: And
1: Elliot. Oh, and I'm Elliot Kalin. I do this on our podcast, and the same thing happens every time. <laughs> <laughs> you you uh, put the And down. I'm, I'm, I'm Elliot yes, Kalen, exit 50B, Milburn, no New Jersey. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Off.
2: Good night. Thank you. Take care, everyone. You. See you.